Please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and find verses 16 and 17 where we'll focus our attention this morning and get through most of it. When I say corporate worship, what do you think? Corporate worship. Maybe you think service times. Some churches meet Sunday morning at 11. Some churches have two Sunday morning services and a Wednesday night service and a Sunday night service. Some churches meet on Saturday night. What is corporate worship? Does it mean singing when we're all together? Since we have two services, does that mean that we're actually never one church? What is corporate worship? Corporate worship is something that we are to be good at, and yet we often struggle to even define. But what if you were told that corporate worship is, in fact, all of life, all the time, and in every way, exactly what you're always to be doing? Worshiping as the body, worshiping our head, always and in everything. Would that change the priorities you live by? Would it change the shows you watch or the vacations you take or the company that you keep? Corporate worship all the time in every way is a privilege of the body of Christ that he has never limited, but we often do. You won't find the word worship in our passage today, yet its stamp is over the whole thing. You see, worship described in these verses is, is all over the verses, and it's the thrust of our each and everyday life and all of the things that we do should all be about worship, should be. If worship is not an active part of your Christian walk, then it's not a Christian walk. It might be a moral life, might be a decent human, but it's not Christian as in following Christ. And if your worship in your Christian walk is only confined to the amount of time you spend here in song, that's pretty hypocritical. To say that Jesus died for you and you live for him and you give him a whole hour a week. Who can find corporate worship to an address and a logo and a time? Jesus didn't. God has not. And he deserves more. So in our passage today, we'll see that the corporate worship is really an all-the-time thing in every way, every day for all of us. Remember this letter that Paul's written. It's a masterful help for Epaphras as he shepherds these Colossian people. Apparently, there was some false doctrine amongst, amongst the true believers in Colossae, and there was these false teachers amongst the body there in Colossae. And yet, Paul doesn't really identify and label and address line by line any heresy. The issues brought by Epaphras to Paul seemingly go kind of undetailed. But Colossae was in the heart of Paul while he sat in jail and with the clanking of his chains, he preached the majesty of Christ and the supremacy of Christ and the beauty of Christ over all things to the Colossian people. You see, it's not that Paul didn't care 
about the struggles that the Colossians were having. It's not that he didn't want to address the specific heresies that they were dealing with. Instead, he just says, this is what you need. And what we find Paul thinks we need in light of the difficulties of bad doctrine or bad practice, either one, is that we need Christ. And I wonder how everyone in the body of Colossae received Paul's beautiful but simple letter. I'm kind of a skeptic at times, and it causes me to think that I would guess not everybody received it well. No doubt the false teaching facing the church was intricate. It always is. No doubt the false teachers uh, that were in the church had defenses for Paul's exalting of Christ. They always do. But Paul didn't care. He said, look, here's the solution. This is what you need to do. Just like Christ told us, what you need to do is proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We're to make him the point of our lives. We're to make him the point of our ministry. And though all of our problems may not be solved, our life will be secure and growing in him. What's the message of Colossians? That it's not a book about false doctrine. It's a book about the glory of Christ. It's not a book about bad practice. It's a book about living like Christ deserves. I can't guarantee it, but I can definitely guess there were people in Colossae that heard Paul's description of the majesty and supremacy and wonder of Christ as the single Savior and the, the sole solution to their problems. And I think they thought something along these lines. Eh, our problems are more complicated than that, Paul. Christian. Be careful thinking your situation is more complicated than the solitary Savior can singularly solve. It doesn't matter the sin or the struggle or the situation. Jesus is your only Savior. It doesn't matter how complicated, convoluted, or constant your problem is. Jesus is the only solution. The problem is, all too often as believers, we fail to pursue Jesus as the Savior and the solution. Instead... We ask a diseased and dying world for answers that give life. We ask temporal, transient men to provide eternal, enduring wisdom. Paul says, Christ is over all. He's the head, we're the body, and our lives are to be lived together in thanksgiving and worship of him. That's not a very popular solution to today's problems, the church. In fact, the church is often labeled as the problem itself instead of the solution. But God's wisdom here says here in the body, and I don't mean 1221 East 33rd Avenue. I mean here, those believers who are blood-bought into the family of God, those who are in the household of God, those who are brothers and sisters and joint heirs of Christ, those are the arms and the legs and the fingers and the toes and the elbows of the body of Christ. We have what we need. It's found here in Christ and his body. We can live lives of corporate worship. We can have a healthy body that nourishes and provides and satisfies and honors and glorifies and magnifies our head. All while we're doing that, we find that Christ is our only savior and our only solution. Paul describes that kind of body in our passage. 
today, a life of togetherness, worshiping, loving, serving, exalting our Savior in everything. A life of together serving and loving and caring for and cherishing each other, ultimately in Him, all for Him and His glory, all in thanks, amazed by what He's done, recognizing it isn't us, but it's all Him. That's the kind of body life that should describe corporate worship. It's an amazing thing. It's the kind of connection to our head that is the solution of our every problem because He is our only Savior. Maybe you've never experienced that type of corporate worship. Let Paul instruct you this morning in how to live as a body in a way that praises our head. Please stand with me and read in reverence to the living God, his word, Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning and see this beautiful Picture this tender privilege you've offered to us to be a body richly connected to our head. Help us. Help us to see the benefit that you've offered to us. Help us to pursue what you have for us here. To recognize and realize we don't have needs that you haven't provided for. Help us. Our hearts are too often too divided. Our minds are too distracted. So give us your grace, we ask, and show us what we need to understand from the word of Christ that it might dwell in us richly so that we can, as you tell us, serve and love and care for each other. All for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we'll find this week and in a few weeks, three essentials for living life as a body. Three essentials for living life as a body that glorifies our head. How do we live life as a body? First, we connect with the head, beginning of verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see, as we study this, you'll notice that this is your responsibility both individually and corporately to be connected to Christ. That's the result of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Churches, bodies of Christ should never lack direction, should never lack instruction, should never lack motivation because all of what we need comes from the head that we are connected too. We don't have to come up with these things on our own if we're intimately, continually, and joyfully connected to our head. This, is, this command is to let God's word dwell in you. 
It's not so that you can be a, like an Awana master memory person. It's not so that you can be a Bible study guru. The point of Christ's word dwelling in you richly is that you're ruled by and connected to intimately, purposefully, and powerfully connected to Christ, the head of the body. Notice Paul begins verse 16 with a similar command that we saw last week in verse 15. Last week, Paul tells us to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This week, he tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it happen, Paul says, meaning this is your responsibility to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The simple question is, are you? This is a command to be active in allowing God's word to saturate your soul. Do you put your soul, your inner being, your heart, your mind, do you put your spiritual self in contact with the word of Christ? This is God's command for us. I like that Paul phrases the command in this way because as a new creation, new creatures, those who've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, those who used to be rebels fighting against God but are now relished by God, those who used to be enemies of God but are now joint heirs with Christ, those who used to be beggars but are now beloved, those who used to be hating God but are now chosen by God, when that's who you were, an object of God's wrath, and now who you are is the recipient of God's love, what do you want that doesn't come from the word of Christ? And you feel it if you're his. If you find yourself starving for the word, it can be tempting to beat yourself up. If, if you find yourself lackadaisical in your devotions, but knowing that you need it and you want it, you just haven't figured it out yet, well, maybe some wisdom needs imputed into you and some admonishment needs to come your direction. But the reality is we can rejoice in the fact that we have a hunger for what God says we should be hungry for, and we can recognize that God hasn't put a limit on it. There's no like dietary caloric intake to the word of Christ. He says it's a full feed buffet. Come on, belly up to the trough. Let's go. It's all yours. You can have all you want. So do you want it? I wonder, Christian, what's, what's filling your mind? Something's filling your mind. Is it family stuff? Health desires? Ministry roles? Responsibilities? Those can all be good things, but so many good things filling our mind often push out the best thing that must be ruling in our heart, and that is Christ. And when we're transparent, most of the time, it's not the good things that are a problem. It's our anxieties around the good things. It's our fears around the good things. It's our inability to trust God with those good things that cause us to forget the best thing, which is Christ, when he's saying, look, I am all that you need. So what is this word of Christ that should, in fact, crowd everything else out of our hearts and dwell in us Richly, what is the word of Christ? Well, it's the same idea that Paul began the letter with in chapter 1, verse 5, when he talks about their love for the saints being evident because of the hope, verse 4, because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The word of the truth. 
Paul equates with the gospel, the word of the truth, the gospel and Paul's lexicon, they all equal this word of Christ. It's all the same thing. People get all hung up. Well, is this the teaching about Christ or is this the teaching of Christ? And it's very rare that I say this, but it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. There's no difference. Why? Because when you're reading the Gospels and you see the parables of Jesus or the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus, and then you go to the epistle of Jude, guess what? It's the same thing. Why? Because it's the same God that inspired us, the same Theopanoustos, the breath of God that causes it to be animated and alive. It's God's word. It's the word of Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus' words are God's words. It's all the same thing. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He he doesn't say uh, to let Paul's wisdom dwell in your heart richly. He doesn't say to let Paul's teaching dwell in your hearts richly. He doesn't say let distant, disconnected theology dwell in your hearts richly. He says uh, the truth, the logos, the word, the corpus of divinity that is about the person of Christ and ultimately the person of Christ's words dwelling in you. That's what's to fill you. Why? One of my favorite descriptions of Jesus comes from the temple thugs in John chapter 7, verse 46. Pharisees say, hey, go get this guy. Temple thugs go to get this guy, and they come back empty-handed, and they say, "Uh, no one ever spoke like this man. They recognized it. Do you? Does the word of Christ strike your soul? Is it like, what? Or is it a sanctified version of Dr. Phil? You can't find what you need apart from him because no one ever spoke like this man. He's the word of God and the word that is God, John chapter 1, verse 1. He's the very, he is the very word of life, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. His word is active and, and living and piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow in our hearts. His word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It leaves you naked and exposed in front of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The word of Christ shows you the path of life, Psalm 1611, and lights your way, Psalm 119, 105. The words of Christ are the only words that can give you eternal hope, life, and joy, Romans 15, 13. God is not asking anything of you, but that which is best for you to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Jesus alone, through his word, is the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12. He's your food, John chapter 6, verse 51, and your drink, John chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus is the one human being in all of human history who speaks the very words of eternal life, John 6, 68. Everyone else's words are specks in the dust storm of time and life that you can chase and never catch, Ecclesiastes 1, 14. But Christ and the word of Christ is what God tells us will satisfy us and feed us and nourish us. And he tells us to let that dwell in us richly. That's why the father told the disciples at the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, this is my beloved son. What are they supposed to do? Listen to him. And then Peter, what's he do? He builds a tent like, dude, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Something, friend, is speaking in your heart. What is it? Something is in your inner man telling you what's important in life. What is it? You have two options. 
You or the word of Christ? Is it the word of Christ? You cannot be connected to Christ, the head, without being filled with his word. Let it dwell in you richly. Paul's not describing a task. He's detailing a privilege. What does it mean for this word to dwell in you? Well, first, notice Paul is he's talking to all of us when he says to dwell in you. We are all commanded to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, to use plural. Paul puts his cowboy hat on and he says to us, let the word of Christ dwell richly in y'all. It's everybody. You're all the target of this command. This command is demanding of us to let ourselves be filled and connected with our head by allowing the fullness of his word to dwell in us richly. What's this accomplish? Well, it makes all of us individually and us corporately together pursue him alone. This makes our body about him and not about us. When our body's about us, we are a problem. When our body is about him, we cannot be a problem. When our body is about him, not only is he glorified, but we benefit. Doesn't this make perfect sense? In the context of chasing sanctification and maintaining unity, that is the context of chapter 3 of Colossians, if we all individually are concerned with Christ as our head, what will we be doing? We'll be desiring to look more like him and we'll desire to make ourselves one under him. And through all that, the word of Christ will be dwelling in us richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Don't skimp. If you translate this literally, it says, listen to preaching for at least 50 minutes on Sunday. Joke, but not. When we love the word of Christ, we love what gets the word of Christ into us. Can you tell me how much Bible is too much? Does anybody feel like their Bible reading plan is just too much an overload of God's goodness? Like, can't take it too much. Read three chapters yesterday. Woo! Hashtag blessed. Can you ever read too much Bible? Who knows somebody in their lives who's not living a righteous life because they're reading too much Bible? Our souls always need more of our Savior. And this body, this body is no different. We need more of Jesus individually and more of Jesus collectively. So get your tails to grace group. Get yourselves to grace life. Use one service sufficient for you? That's not rich. You're like living in poverty. We don't charge for grace life. We don't charge for grace groups. You occasionally bring some snacks, but it's free. College kids, free food. Goodness, come on. Older people, you've got what younger people need. Go get yourself engaged in these things so that you can see the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Serve in ministry in the body in ways that demand that you take what God has given you and give it to other people. 
Because when you're having to give other people the word of Christ, what will be happening in you? You'll be chasing it a lot more fervently. You'll be active in, in getting it to dwell in you. So when you open your mouth, you have something from it to say. Too often we're stingy with the word of Christ in our soul. Do you have something better to be doing than filling your inner man with the wonder of the God-man? Like, what would that be? I think we should all read and take in and listen to audio, Bible, whatever. Do it as much as absolutely possible. Heard a story from a missionary who lived in Jordan and served there for decades. He was kicked out by the government, and he and his wife changed their names and got new passports, and they went to Morocco. Fascinating guy. Right before he left Jordan, there was a young man converted to Christ. And then here's this guy, his discipler leaves, gone. A few months, this guy doesn't want to reach out because he doesn't want to cause problems for this new convert Bible. But before he left, this guy was, he was all about the Bible. Every morning for a couple of hours, reading the word, soaking it in, letting the word of Christ dwell in him richly. A few months later goes by, connects with him on a messaging app and struggling, having a hard time. Seasoned missionary tries to get to the bottom of what happened. Wouldn't you know, he, he met another American missionary. And this other American missionary said, you need a Bible reading plan. Don't just willy-nilly read all this stuff. You need a Bible reading plan. You only need three chapters a day. You need to focus on what you're reading. So here he is, instead of a couple hours, 20 minutes, and he's done. What's wrong with us? Really? That's your advice? Read less and understand more? How about take it all in? Like, you don't have a debit card with the Bible. Your account is perpetually full. You can have all you want. You can let all the word dwell in you richly. Do you? Do you want it? Should you study deeply? Yes. Should you pursue understanding? Absolutely. But should you take as much as God will give you? Yes, you absolutely should. Why? Because as Jesus quoted Moses in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Some of you are like a spiritual celiacs. You're like, I'm gluten-free, can't do it. Small doses, please. Ancient grains only. Like, come on. Soak it up. Get all you want. Eat it all. It's all there for you as a church. We must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. God's word is the bread that we need, according to Moses. It's the milk we should crave, according to Peter. It's the meat that grows us, that Paul tells the Corinthians. It's the frosting to our cupcake, according to the psalmist. Okay, that was my version, but... Sweeter than honey, according to the psalmist. What is it to you? It's what the preacher talks about on Sunday. Friends, God offers you himself in his word. Belly up to the trough and feast on the glory of God and the beauty of his word that he gives freely to you. So where do we find his word? We find it in the Bible. 
We find his word in preaching. We find his word in true biblical fellowship. We find his word in church, church ordinances and communion and church discipline and baptism. We were forced to intersect with all of these things that God has said. Christ dwells where his word is. He dwells where his word is preached and where his word is sought out and where his word is welcomed, where his word is loved and where his word is cherished and where his word is the rule over all that we do. When his word is the sovereign authority of our lives, who's there? He is. Wherever that is, Christ is there richly. I like how Paul says the same thing in a different way in a parallel passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What's Paul's point? Be controlled, not with some outside influence, but with the Spirit. Have the Spirit control and compel you. Verse 19, what's that produce? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Spirit of God controls you, when the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, what's the result? You're, you're loving one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're making melody to the Lord with thanksgiving, giving thanks to God in everything on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how should we understand being filled by the Spirit? Is this something different from the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly? Is one dependent on the other? Is there like step one and then step two? Is one more important than the other? Well, we know the Holy Spirit's role is to bring glory to Christ. John chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. We know the Spirit guides us into truth. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Spirit takes what the Son says, the Word of Christ, and makes it clear to us. He illuminates it to us, makes us understand it. So being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly are like two sides of the same coin. If you want to be connected to the head, be filled with the Spirit. You want to be connected to the head, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You can't let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly if you don't understand it. The Spirit makes you understand. If all you've got is the Spirit, well, you won't just have the Spirit because the Spirit makes us want the truth of God that comes from the Word of Christ. They go together. It's a both-and relationship, not an either-or. It's not an if-then. It's both-and. When you're in the Word and the Spirit is in you, Christ is dwelling in you richly. And when Christ is dwelling in you richly, when you're walking in the Spirit, when you walk around the foyer and the fruits of the Spirit are like falling out of your pockets, what do you treasure? I think there's two things that people who live in the Spirit and have the Word of Christ dwelling in them richly treasure. They treasure two things. They treasure time with Christ and they treasure His people. If you don't treasure those two things, then... It's because the word of Christ is not dwelling in you richly and you're not filled with the Spirit. But if you're filled with the Spirit and the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, then you're going to love Christ and love time with him and you're going to love his people because he loves them enough to die for them. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But how do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Well, we have to exercise we have to exercise the body. 
Paul tells us in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All of these participles are with each other for God. We're together for him. And the way we exercise the body reinforces each of us as it individually keeps us connected to the head. Verse 16 begins with our individual corporate responsibility to be filled with the word of Christ. And it moves to our collective responsibility to take that word of Christ, to use that word of Christ in the lives of each other, for each other, ultimately for the glory of God. The focus on the worship of the collective body suggests Paul is urging the body as a whole to put the message of Christ at the center of all that they do. This word of Christ that dwells in us individually richly should also dwell richly in the midst of everything that we do corporately as a body. How? Teaching, admonishing, singing. First, teaching. Teaching was an essential part of the ministry of Paul. It's also to be an essential part of your ministry. And you say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not, I'm not me. I'm not a teacher. Well, the Bible says you are. You say, well, hold on. Uh, it's, just not, it's not my gifting. Okay, but aren't we all to be letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly? And in the same breath, Paul says we're all to be teaching who? Each other. One another. Why would you suggest that we're not all to teach? Are we all going to have different giftings? Absolutely. Do we all have different responsibilities? Absolutely. But to some degree, in some way, we're all required to teach because we're commanded to. The same command to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly is there to teach. When you read Titus chapter 2, as we grow and we mature, there will always be someone that's less mature that needs the truth that God has taught us. Paul uses this idea, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, the most generic word for teaching that he could possibly use. It's just take the truth of the word of Christ and give it to other people. If the word of Christ is dwelling in you, you have the truth to give to others. It's not a calling uh, that you have to take on to be some sort of conference speaker riding the waves of Christian celebrity. This, this, is, this is just take the truth that God has taught you that dwells within you and give it to those around you that God has put around you, which is this body. This is telling you at Grace Group, those who have gray hair, you have something to teach. You've been there. You've done that. If nothing else, you can say, don't do what I did. That's still something to teach. The teaching ministry of the church should not be limited to the people who are viewed as gifted and trained to teach. Should they teach? Absolutely. Do they have different responsibilities? Absolutely. Should they get the majority of the reps? Absolutely. But every member of the body should be ready to offer teaching because they're dwelling in what? The word of Christ is dwelling in them. Or it should be. And when it's rich in you, you can give it away. You don't have to hang on to it. God will give you more. God will continue to fill you richly. I like how one preacher said, the church is to be stocked with good teaching as a palace is filled with treasures. I've heard some good teaching at this church. I love it. But some of the best teaching I've ever heard in my office from some of you. 
You came in to ask a question, give a comment, maybe make an encouragement, at times a rebuke. And as we sit there and the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, comes out of you to me, man, that's good stuff. That's what Paul's talking about. When it dwells in you richly, it can come out of you freely. If it's never coming out of you freely, tell me, is it dwelling in you richly? Maybe you've noticed this in your grace groups or in grace life or in the foyer as you talk to people. Some people, the word of Christ is coming out of them. Stick around those people. Learn from those people. This is bodily exercise we should all get behind, and it's exactly what Christ deserves because it's what Christ commands with all authority that we do what? Go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and giving them pamphlets. No, teaching them all that I've commanded. And Lord, I'm with you always. How's that work? The word of Christ dwells in us richly and comes out of us freely. Exercise the body, teach, and admonish. Admonishing differs from teaching just a bit. Admonishing definitely is teaching, but admonishing is kind of the negative side of teaching. The teaching is often the theology, the reality of who God is, that this is who God is. Admonishing is because of who God is. Stop being how you are and pursue who he is. It's the warning. It's the application in specific areas of life. It's getting down to the brass tacks and the nitty-gritty. Admonishing can be viewed as the negative side of teaching because often admonishing is warning, and that makes perfect sense in Paul's ministry because what was Paul often doing? Warning people who weren't paying attention to the truth that he'd taught them. Remember Paul in Ephesus, Acts chapter 20, verse 31 He's gone house to house teaching. And he says, therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I've not ceased night or day to admonish everyone with tears. We need warnings. We need warnings, but we need warnings that are specific. And where should the warnings come from, according to Paul? Your life experience? No. Where? From God's wisdom. From wisdom. We teach truth and we warn against error. But wisdom tells us which is which and when. We teach the word of Christ and we warn with the wisdom of Christ. Notice some of you are still unconvinced that this teaching and warning is your job. Well, look at the middle of verse or the end of verse 16, teaching and admonishing who? One another. Paul uses a plural reflexive pronoun. What's that mean? It means it's everybody going both directions. You cannot exclude yourself from this if you're in Christ. It's the body's privilege to be full of the word of Christ, to nourish the whole body of Christ. And we do it in wisdom, God's wisdom. God's wisdom. Where's God's wisdom come from? God's wisdom begins with understanding that we're not God and we desperately need all that God has to offer. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's why the word of Christ has to dwell in us richly so that we have the wisdom to be able to say what God deserves that we say to each other. Notice the final way of exercising the body in verse 16 is singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Maybe you're as musical as me. 
I can do this with the radio. That's the extent of my musicality. Paul broadens the scope of our singing to anything that is teaching and admonishing the word of God and all wisdom with song. Do you see what he did? This, this is singing that is teaching and admonishing with God's wisdom. That's what Paul's talking about. When we tune ourselves to the word of Christ, we are all together, unified in Christ, living for Christ. Singing is basically group catechizing. We're learning truth together for each other and for the glory of Christ. One grace group asked me if it was okay if they sang during grace group. I'm like, I kind of wish I could sing and make my grace group cool like that. But yes, that's okay. You should do those things if, if you can do those things. I find it funny how wonky people get with these three words. These three descriptions of music. Psalms, it's a pretty easy one. Normally people just point to the Psalms, the Psalter, the inspired lyrical text. Hymns are normally considered some sort of traditional format of transferring doctrine through song. And then spiritual songs. It's like the broadest term Paul could possibly use for getting out music and spiritualishness. Like it is broad. You, you have everything from purely reading the Psalms and singing them to a song about an experience with the Lord somewhere in that spectrum. Some people say we can only sing psalms. I agree, we should sing psalms. But how can you say we can only sing psalms? Read the verse. What's it say? It says more than psalms. Some people think we can only sing choruses. Like if it's not on Caleb, we can't do it. Come on, read the verse. What's it say? Some people... They're hooked on the hymns. Gotta love the hymns. I'm all about the hymns. I love the hymns. And you say, I like old hymns. Okay. Which ones? Like the Gregorian chants from the 400s and 500s ADs? I'm not down with that. You say, no, the older hymns. You mean like the ones that are written in German and then translated into Old English and then set to an English tavern-style bar tune and then that we sing now? Oh, I know I offended some of you. It's okay. Pastor Hadley will take all of your requests. <laughs> Why do we do that? Paul is doing his best to broaden this out so that we all understand that what's supposed to be happening in our singing, that it's the truth of God, it's the teaching of God and the admonishment of God and all of God's wisdom that's doing what? Instructing us in our worship to him, our being thankful to him. To summarize, when we're filled with the abiding word of Christ, active in teaching and admonishing each other, and together we're singing these truths and singing the word of Christ in all wisdom and thanksgiving to God, when that's what we're doing, what will we be tempted to do? What will our hearts be drawing us into? It'll be drawing us into loving Christ and looking like Christ and loving what Christ loves. What is that? That's sanctification. That's unity. What is that? That's Colossians chapter 3. I love verse 17. It's the perfect combination of simplicity and power, and we'll get to it another time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you offer to us and the beauty of the word of Christ. 
that you have given to us richly, that it can dwell in us and flow from us freely in a way that makes much of you and helps each other, in a way that overflows from our life as we sing it, as we sing your word, as we sing our traditions, and as we sing our affections, all ultimately pointed at helping each other and offering thanks to you. What a God you are to care for us as you have. Help us. We need it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.